Our lesson of the day comes from Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 29. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that you may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. And there ends our reading. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that even as you inspired a letter to be written by Jeremiah and sent to the Israelite exiles, those in captivity, that you would speak to us now through this same letter that you might fill us with wisdom, that we might understand the times, that we might know what you would have us, your people, to do, that we might live as your holy and faithful covenant community in the world. Father, we ask that you would shape us by your word, that you would shape us by your truth. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, these days it seems that Christians have made a rather morbid hobby out of cataloging everything that is wrong with the world, everything that's going wrong in the world around us. Uh, Many Christians uh, whine and complain about conditions. Many Christians seem to be on the verge of panic. And Christians are continually debating what is the best way to deal with a world that seems increasingly hostile to us. You could fill bookshelf after bookshelf with books written just in the last five to ten years on how Christians ought to relate to their culture. Think about all that's going wrong in the world. I shouldn't have to catalog these things for you, but I will. 
Globally, you've got ISIS shedding blood and spreading hate, especially in the Middle East, but uh, now moving into Europe. You've got Iraq and Korea, uh, North Korea, working on nuclear warheads. Uh, here at home, uh, we've got violence. It seems that not uh, a week or two can pass without some major shooting or act of violence. We've got family breakdown uh, in our cities, in our culture. Uh, our cultural elite have managed to violate Scripture and nature in the most fundamental way by decreeing a redefinition of marriage. Uh, our rulers no longer seem to know the difference between a boy and a girl. And so our culture has descended into battling over who may use which public restroom. Uh, we have a health care law in place that now forces nuns, of all people, to pay for birth control, including abortion. Uh, it seems that uh, religious liberty is on a collision course with the sexual rights movement. Uh, and at this point, there's really no reason to think that religious liberty will win in the long run. I've heard several pastors recently say something like, I'm not sure my congregation is really ready for what's coming. Uh, we're seeing all around us the collapse of Christian influence. You know, it used to be that you had devout Christians on one side, and then you had a few really hostile non-Christians over on the other side, and then you had this big middle, this kind of semi-Christian middle in America, where perhaps people didn't hold the Christian doctrines, but they at least respected Christian morality. Uh, they paid lip service to the Bible and to the church. But that's no longer the case. There's no cultural shelter for Christians anymore. Uh, the church's once uh, privileged place, her, her once privileged position in the culture has been lost. Uh, the American Bible Society does a lot of surveys on people's views of the Bible. And it's interesting to note that overall, the number of regular Bible readers, the number of devoted Bible readers, really has not declined. It's remained quite steady. But what has changed in the last five years or so is the now huge number of people who think the Bible is actually a dangerous book, that it is an oppressive cultural influence. It used to be that people who did not have Christian hearts still respected Christian morality and they would have respect for the Christian Bible and Christian beliefs. That's really not the case so much anymore. There is a growing polarization. Times are changing, certainly. Uh, Christians aren't in charge anymore. Uh, in fact, we're barely even influential. And it seems that the gulf between the churched and the unchurched is wider than it's ever been in our nation's history. Now, of course, you know all of this. I don't have to tell you all of this. Uh, you see this around you every day. You see it in the news. You see it in your everyday life. You know the narrative. You know this story. Now, unfortunately, some Christians seem overwhelmed by this narrative, so overwhelmed that they seem whiny and hopeless when they talk about it. Now, I read for us Jeremiah 29. How might that help us in this Situation. How might Jeremiah 29 help us understand how to respond to this kind of situation? Uh, you may have heard me talk in the past before about how we as Christians use the Old Testament. Uh, we're whole Bible Christians. We're committed to the whole of Scripture. That means the Old Testament is applicable for Christians. It is not the Word of God emeritus. Uh, it's still relevant for us. It is still authoritative. It is still applicable uh, to us. 
But I will say this, different sections of the Old Testament are more directly applicable to us at various times. So, for example, if you find yourself living in what could be called a Christendom period, a period where the church and the gospel are in the ascendancy, where you have Christian rulers and a generally Christianized culture, then when you look at the Old Testament, while it's all relevant and all applicable and all authoritative, it is especially the kingdom period of Israel's history uh, that is especially instructive. Because that's when Israel had a kingdom of her own. And she had kings like David and Solomon. And there are certain responsibilities and temptations that come with that kind of cultural situation for the church. If you find yourself in more of a missionary situation, living in a culture surrounded by pagans, living in a culture surrounded by people who are hostile to your faith and hostile to your God, then I would say Israel's exile period is especially helpful. And I think it is especially Israel's exile period that is uh, similar to our situation, indeed increasingly similar to our situation. There are a lot of very clear-cut analogies between Israel in exile and our present situation. Uh, Christians in America today are much like Israelites living among the Babylonians. And in that context, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles can serve as a kind of blueprint, a template for us for how we are to live in this kind of situation. In a situation like ours, we should ask, what would Jeremiah do? Maybe even somebody should make up WWJD bracelets. What would Jeremiah do? Put yourself in the place of those Jewish exiles that Jeremiah addressed. They had experienced, you know, we think we've experienced cultural change really rapidly. They experienced cultural changes much faster than we are right now. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had invaded Israel. They had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They had sacked the city. Uh, Prophets like Jeremiah had warned that this was coming. They had said, this is what's going to happen. But it still caught many in Israel uh, off guard. Many of Israel's best citizens, as you see here in the beginning of Jeremiah 29, had been carried off to Babylon as prisoners. Put yourself in their shoes as you read this letter. How would you have responded? What does this letter tell the exiles to do? There is much in this letter that is surprising, much that is comforting, and much that is challenging. Consider some different aspects of this letter. First, the comfort. Look at the way this letter is addressed. The letter does not address itself to, say, those whom Nebuchadnezzar captured and deported to Babylon, but rather to those the Lord sent to Babylon, those the Lord caused to be sent to Babylon. Two times in verses 4 and 7 in this letter, he tells them the Lord sent them there. The Lord sent you to Babylon. Certainly Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians didn't see it this way. Nebuchadnezzar figured that Israel was just another nation he conquered to add to his ever-expanding empire. He figured the fact that he had conquered Israel meant that his gods were stronger than the God of the Israelites. What this letter is indicating here to the exiles is that no, God has not been defeated. And actually, what Nebuchadnezzar meant for evil, God means for good. Behind Nebuchadnezzar's purposes stand the larger purposes of God. And this is a comfort. This is a comfort to know that God is always in charge. 
to know that whatever our cultural circumstances, God is in control. God always rules on the stage of world history. The book of Proverbs says, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of God. He turns it wherever he will. Our rulers can do nothing but what God has decreed. See, this letter indicates God's absolute sovereignty. And this is, it's put this way in the letter to cheer the exiles up, to remind them that God has a plan and a purpose. And that's a good thing for us to remember as well. Uh, in fact, in verse 4, the Lord identifies Himself as the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of armies. As if to say, it wasn't really Nebuchadnezzar's army that was behind all of this. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's army that took you away in exile. It was the Lord's army. The Lord's army is behind all of this. The Lord's army escorted you to your new home. Don't forget the Lord has an army. You saw Nebuchadnezzar's army up close and personal Way more personal than you wanted it to be. But remember, the Lord has an army as well. That's a comfort. But there's also a surprise here. It is surprising how pro-Babylon this letter is. How pro-Babylonian God wants His people to be in exile. What does God want His people to do? He wants His people to settle down and be at home in Babylon. To unpack their bags and to get comfortable the letter instructs them to build houses and plant gardens in verse 5. Verse 6 says to get married and have children. It sounds like he wants them to pursue the Babylonian dream. <laughs> but in no better, that's what I would say is going on here. It's like God says, look, I want you to have a house with a two-car garage and a bunch of kids with a swing set out back. You know, That's how I want you to live in exile. God wants His people to go on enjoying His good gifts and enjoying His creaturely comforts even in the midst of exile. But they've also got a task here. Verse 7, God says they are to seek the peace of the city where the Lord has sent them to dwell. Think about that. The Lord wants them to seek the peace of the city. The Babylonians had waged war and destroyed their city. And now the Lord says, I want you to seek the peace and pray for the peace of the Babylonian city. God, they destroyed our city and you're telling us you want us to seek the peace of their city? How can that be? This, you might say, is one of those places in Scripture where the Lord calls on us to love our enemy and to pray for those who persecute us. But it still raises a huge question here. It's, it's not just surprising that there is this command. It also raises a lot of questions. How do you seek the peace of a rebellious city, a, a pagan city? How do you pray for the peace of a rebellious city? How do you work for that peace? How do you pray for that peace? Well, it's interesting. Throughout Scripture, we have models of this. We see God's people praying for cities. So Abraham prayed for Sodom. Sodom was certainly another very wicked city, just like Babylon, a city known for its perversity and its cruelty. Abraham asked God to spare the city. His cousin Lot and his family was living there. Abraham asked God to spare the city of Sodom. He finally gets it down to the point where if there are even ten righteous people in the city, the Lord agrees to spare the city. Abraham was seeking the shalom of Sodom. Now, Sodom was still judged, but, the, but Abraham saw that God was going to do what was right. God was going to be merciful. We've got Abraham as an example of this kind of prayer. The Psalms are filled with 
what you might call urban intercessions. Psalm 122 comes to mind. Psalm 122 is a prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. But it could have, with a few adjustments here and there, served as a model for praying for the peace of other cities as well. The prayer for the peace of the city. But you know, the, the, the picture that Scripture as a whole gives us is a little more complicated than just praying for the peace of the pagan city. See, certainly here the Israelites are commanded to pray for the peace of Babylon, but you know what? We can also find places in Scripture where the Israelites prayed against Babylon. Places like Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is really interesting. The Israelites are in exile. That's the setting of Psalm 137. And they sit down next to the river. They sit down next to the river and they start to weep because they miss home. They miss Jerusalem. They miss the temple. Their captors, we don't know if this is a sincere question or a mocking question. You could debate that. But their captors ask them to sing a song, to sing one of Zion's songs. And they say, how shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? In other words, how can we sing Jerusalem's songs in Babylon? And then the the psalm goes on from there. You come to the end of Psalm 137 and they ask the Lord to destroy Babylon. Because of the city's wickedness, they ask the Lord to destroy the city to even dash their children against the rock. They're praying against Babylon. Now there's something really ironic about Psalm 137. Here's the irony. Psalm 137 asks... How can we sing Zion's songs in Babylon? But the thing is, Psalm 137 is one of Zion's songs being sung in Babylon. So it can be done. God's people can sing songs in exile. In fact, this is what God wants His people to do. The Israelites had lost their city and their temple. But when they were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, they were to bring the songs of Jerusalem with them. They were to bring their worship with them. They would be a singing, worshiping people even in a foreign land. Indeed, part of God's purpose in sending them into exile would be so that they could witness to the Babylonians through their praise. And Psalm 137 is part of that. Psalm 137 is proof of that. But then you might wonder, how does all this fit together? How can Psalm 137 be squared with Jeremiah 29? Jeremiah says, pray for the peace of Babylon. The psalmist actually prays for Babylon to be destroyed. How do you fit those two together? Well, I think the answer to that question is crucial. It's crucial to understanding Jeremiah's whole program. Jeremiah says he wants the exiles to be for Babylon. To be pro-Babylon. But sometimes to be For the city, you have to be against the city. Being for the city, seeking its peace, does not mean leaving the city as it is. It means being against everything in the city that is corrupt and depraved and idolatrous and dehumanizing. To seek the peace of the city, to seek the the, the shalom of the city means that the sin that wrecks that shalom and stands in the way of that shalom has to be destroyed. Either the the, the sinner's sin has to be removed, which would mean his conversion, or the sinner himself has to be removed, which would mean judgment. Think of the city as a human body. And inside that human body are cancers. There are tumors. The only way to be for the body is to be against the cancers. 
to be for the body, you have to cut it open and remove those tumors. You have to cut those cancers out. You are against the body, cutting it open for the sake of the body. The prayers against are for when seen in this larger context. To pray for, you know, if you think about a human body that way, to pray for the health of the body is to pray for the destruction of the diseases. And that's how Jeremiah 29 and Psalm 137 fit together. See, being pro-Babylon means loving the city. It means praying for its peace. It means working for its transformation. It means seeking to disciple the city. And that means opposing wickedness in the city. Standing against wickedness in the city. The good we seek for the city is defined by God in His Word, not by the city itself. So the city may not like a lot of the things we have to say for the city's good. The city may not like what we have to say about abortion as the taking of an innocent life. The city may not like what we have to say about a sex ethic and how God designed our bodies to work and, and, and God's purpose for marriage and how God defines marriage. The city may not like to hear all of that, but it is good for the city to hear truth in these areas so that dehumanizing practices can be brought to an end. See, sometimes to be for, you have to be against. It's kind of a, a surprise in this chapter how pro-Babylon God wants His people to be. But then there's also a challenge here. God warns His people about not listening to the false prophets. You see this in verse 8 and 9. These seem to be those who denied that the Lord was behind the exile. There's a lot of false prophets that are dealt with in the book of Jeremiah. We don't know if these are just like those other false prophets or a different group of false prophets with a different kind of message. But it seems that these were false prophets who were denying that the Lord was behind the exile or who were perhaps telling the people not to settle down because the exile was going to be extremely brief. But see, that would be the wrong kind of message. The exile is not going to be over soon. It would be wrong to deny that the Lord was behind the exile. It would be wrong to deny that God was going to leave them in exile for an extended period of time. And it's really important that they not listen to these false prophets, however attractive their message may have been. Because God's purpose for Israel depends upon them knowing that they have been sent there by the Lord and that they're going to stay for a while. They've got to know that the Lord has sent them. Now think about this. When the Lord sends His people to a foreign land, what do we call that? Well, ordinarily we call that mission. Those the Lord sends to a foreign land to stay there for a while, we call those people missionaries. And really, in effect, that's what the exiles are to be. The Israelites are to be the Lord's missionaries in Babylon. The ones who have been sent there by the Lord. But see, if you take away the Lord's sending, you lose that missionary purpose, that missional vision that the exiles were to have. And when the people of God lose that missional vision, what happens? Well, without a sense of mission, either the people of God blend into the world, they end up over-assimilating and becoming just like the world, no longer a distinctive culture or counterculture within the larger culture, or they separate themselves from the world. They separate themselves not just morally in terms of their 
holiness the way that they live, but they separate themselves spatially and socially and culturally. And they put so much distance between themselves and the world that they can no longer reach anyone. There, there are no bridges between the people of God and the people of the world, so they can't do mission anymore and they become useless in that way. See, when we lose our sense of mission, what happens to the people of God? We either assimilate into the world or we separate ourselves from the world. And in either case, the church can no longer reach the world with God's truth. When God's people live in a hostile culture, they have to live as resident aliens. That's actually the, the, the term that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He calls believers living in the midst of the Roman Empire resident aliens. What did this mean for the Jewish exiles? How were they to be resident aliens? Well, they were to be in Babylon, but not of Babylon. would be a, a familiar way of putting it. They were to understand they could never fully belong to Babylon. They couldn't become full Babylonians. But at the same time, well, they couldn't go all the way and just give up their Israelite identity and blend in with the Babylonians, they were to be engaged in the city of Babylon. They were to be involved in their city. They were to be like leaven permeating the whole batch of dough in order to transform the city. They were to bring Jerusalem with them to Babylon. They were to be a colony of Jerusalem within Babylon, bringing the Jerusalem way of life to the pagan city. They were to be engaged in the culture of their city, but distinct from it. So, for example, we could ask this kind of question. How are they to look at their captors? How are they to look at the Babylonians? Well, clearly God wants His people to see the Babylonians not as enemies, but as neighbors. That's what it means to settle down and build a house and plant a garden. It means you're to see these people, the Babylonians, as your neighbors. And what are we to do with neighbors? Well, Scripture tells us again and again. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's true even if your neighbor is not a Christian. You're to love your neighbor whoever he is. Your neighbor may be a pagan. He may be an atheist. He may be a Muslim. He may be gay. You are to love your neighbor. It doesn't matter if his skin color or his politics are different from yours. It doesn't matter. You know, you have to say this in these parts. It doesn't matter if he pulls for a different football team than you do. You are to love your neighbor. Now, I think this is hard for us for a couple reasons. One, it's hard just because everybody, we're still sinners, so you know, we all tend to be self-centered. That makes love hard. But also, sometimes it's hard for us to love people we really disagree with because we think if I love this person and I show kindness to this person and I befriend this person, well, they're going to equate my love with my approval. As if loving someone and being kind and serving someone means I am giving blanket approval to the way they've chosen to live their life. And so I think sometimes Christians withhold love and withhold kindness for fear of giving somebody the wrong idea. They might think that I'm okay with the choices they've made, with the life they're living, and I'm not, so I'm not going to be overtly mean, but I'm just going to kind of give them the cold shoulder, and I'm certainly not going to reach out and befriend them in any way. That's not God's way. That's not God's way for His people. God pours out His gifts on the just and the unjust, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We ought to love our neighbor whoever our neighbor is. Showing love is not the same as showing approval. It is true, we do need to confront people in their sin. 
But confrontations are almost always going to be fruitless unless those confrontations are surrounded by mercy and service and friendship and kindness. That's the context for meaningful and fruitful confrontation. So there you have a thumbnail sketch of Jeremiah's program for the people of God in exile. Uh, I think one of the best things about this is that you can flip over a few pages in your Bible to the book of Daniel and you can actually see with concrete examples how some very faithful Israelites live out this program. You see there Daniel and his friends. They are exiles. They've been exiled to Babylon. The Lord has sent them there and they prosper there. It's very clear. They are for the city. They're for the empire. But they're also willing to stand against it when they need to. They're for the city, but precisely because they're for the city, they're willing to stand against the city when they need to. Daniel and his friends certainly seek the peace of Babylon. Daniel and his friends were sent to a Babylonian school. They didn't seem to have much choice about that, but there in the context of that Babylonian school, they showed their loyalty to God by specific dietary practices, refusing to eat the king's food. Uh, Daniel and his friends are so, are so engaged in the culture as exiles, they actually become embedded in the imperial regime, in the imperial government. They don't just go with the flow, but they're, 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 they're standing there in that imperial government, in that imperial regime. And so what do they do? Well... When President Obama passes an executive order, wait, I mean, I'm sorry, I mean King Darius. When King Darius issues an executive order that tells Daniel he can no longer pray to his God, in other words, he can no longer do the Jeremiah 29 thing, praying for the city, what does he do? He disobeys the pagan king and keeps on praying, even with the windows open so everybody can see his defiance. He is openly defiant. And what happens? The Lord protects him and the Lord blesses him. When Anthony Kennedy says everybody's got to bow down to this goal. Oh wait, not Anthony Kennedy. I'm sorry. When Nebuchadnezzar commands the people to bow down before his golden statue, Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. Even when they're threatened with the fiery furnace, they Refuse. They are defiantly seeking the good of their city. They know it will not be good for the city if they engage in this idolatry. And so they stand against it. And what does God do? God prospers them. When they're thrown into the fire, the only thing they lose are their bonds. As Christians living in an increasingly hostile culture, we need to know our Daniel moments, our Shadrach moments, will come. And when they come, it will not be easy to be faithful. It will not be easy to be loyal to God in such trying times. But if we are faithful, if we're willing to suffer in this way, to remain faithful to God, what can we expect on the other side? We can expect transformation to follow. In fact, this is what you see in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar actually converts. He becomes a, a God-fearer, a worshiper of the true God. He confesses that Israel's God, Daniel's God, is sovereign. He issues a decree in his empire that this is the God who is to be worshipped. 
His whole way of life and His way of ruling is transformed. The exile for Israel turns out to be a catastrophe, A disaster that turns out to be a blessing. A blessing that was disguised as disaster. And our cultural situation in which we find ourselves increasingly marginalized could be a catastrophe as well. Now, let's wrap this up by talking about what all of this means for us. Birmingham isn't exactly Babylon. In fact, they call this part of the country the Bible Belt for a reason. But Birmingham is becoming more and more like Babylon by the day. And so our situation is analogous to that of the Israelites in exile in all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways. Our city certainly has its problems. Our city certainly lacks shalom in all kinds of ways. And so we, as the people of God living here, sent here by God, We need to ask ourselves, what does God want us to do in our city? How does Jeremiah's letter speak to us? If Jeremiah were writing this letter to Christians in Birmingham today, what would he tell us to do? How can we seek the peace of our city? What is Jeremiah's program for us? Well, certainly he would want us to be in Birmingham, but not of Birmingham. He would want us to live as resident aliens. You know, we have a lot of talk about aliens or uh, immigrants uh, these days, both legal and illegal immigrants. But you know, given all this, maybe Christians are the ones who should have green cards. Maybe we're the ones who should admit we just don't belong here. We don't quite fit in. We're the aliens. We're the strangers. And yet we're here to bless and to serve the city, to seek the good of the city as a community with the other churches of this city. We want to function as a city on a hill, light shining into the darkness, a city within the city of Birmingham. See, Jeremiah would say to us, the Lord has sent you there. The Lord has sent you to Birmingham. And you are to be His servants and His missionaries there seeking the good of the city. So we are to be pro-Birmingham. We're to build houses and plant gardens and enjoy what the city has to offer and enjoy God's good gifts here. We're to celebrate our city's culture in all the ways we can. Everything good about the city, we should celebrate it and love it and contribute to it. We should have sons and daughters. I'd say this is one command that our congregation seems to be obeying uh, these days. We should seek the shalom of Birmingham. It should be evident to all we are here to serve the city and bless the city. We're to pray for the peace of our city. To pray for the shalom of Birmingham. We try to do this on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights at Vespers, but I think we can do it even more. Prayer is crucial to Jeremiah's whole program. So often we privatize prayer. And we sort of close up our prayer lives. And and our our prayer circle is really no bigger than just our, our, our friends and our family. And we really don't know how to pray for anything bigger than that or anything beyond that. Jeremiah would say, no, your prayer lives need enlargement. Make the circle of your prayer life bigger. Make it as big as the city. Make it as big as the country. Make it as big as the empire. Make it as big as the world. But Jeremiah would say, start with your city. The common good, or what historically also has been called the common wealth, is a distinctively biblical and Christian conception. We are to be the people who seek the common good of the city. And we seek the common good of the city largely through our prayers. Through our prayers, we seek the flourishing of all. Now, sometimes that means we've got to pray against Birmingham. 
in order to pray for Birmingham. But our ultimate long-term goal is the flourishing and prosperity of the city. Because as Jeremiah says here, in some way our own welfare is wrapped up with the welfare of the city. And so we pray. Christians belong on their knees. Christians are at their best on their knees. What do we pray for? We pray for our city's officials, for mayors and councilmen and judges. We pray for our public servants like policemen and firefighters whose jobs seem to be getting increasingly difficult. We pray for businesses and for economic growth, economic prosperity in the city. You know, our city's unemployment rate is one of the highest in the country. So we pray. We pray against that kind of poverty and unemployment. We pray for entrepreneurs to be raised up in our city who can create new businesses and new jobs. We pray for our schools and universities. Obviously, public education is officially secular, which means that the deepest truths about God and the world cannot be taught in our public schools. But you know, Daniel was in a public school. Maybe we should pray that God will raise up Daniels within the context of these public educational institutions. That may seem crazy. How can we do that in our day and age? Pray for the schools to change in this kind of way. But it's there. The public schools aren't going away. They're going to be there. We've got to include them in our prayers as well. And certainly we need to pray for Christian educational institutions as well. Christian schools. Uh, that Christian schools would multiply throughout our city, that everybody in our city who desires a Christian education would have access to it. We need to pray for Christian homeschoolers. We need to pray for the end of violence in our city. You know, there were 87 chargeable homicides in our city in 2015. That is 87 too many. Pray for the end of bloodshed in our city. Pray for an end to systems of injustice and oppression. You know, Dorothy Day once made the point, she said the calling of the church is not just to minister to slaves, but to eradicate slavery. We have to not just minister to the victims of unjust and oppressive systems, we actually have to change the systems so they're no longer unjust and oppressive. It's not enough to minister to the victims of the system. You've got to change the system. And so we pray and work to that end. We've got to pray against family breakdown and pray for stable marriages and stable homes and families. We can see the multi-generational effects of family breakdown all around us. That's actually the, the main contributing factor to poverty. We've got to pray against these things for the prosperity of our city. We've got to pray for cross-racial trust and friendships. You know, we know our city's unpleasant history with regard to race. We need to be praying for racial shalom, racial peace. We need to pray against destructive behaviors like drug and alcohol addiction. You know, the officials who measure this kind of thing say that heroin use is now epidemic in Alabama. Deaths from heroin have spiked sharply each year for several years running. In fact, heroin deaths in Jefferson County in 2014 jumped 140%. Way over 100 deaths from heroin alone. It is not hard to see where our, our city lacks shalom. We need to pray for God's shalom to fill our city streets. You know, churches usually develop vision statements for their congregation. You know, we've done that. I think that's a good exercise for churches to do. But maybe churches should also be in the business of developing vision statements for their cities. Not just for the church, but for the city. That may seem pretentious and kind of over the top. 
But that's the kind of thing we've got to think about to be able to say, here's where we want to see our city flourish. And here's how we are praying for the peace, the shalom of our city. And here's where we think our city lacks shalom. And this is what needs to change. This is where we need transformation. This means we've got to do ministry, mercy ministry and evangelism. It's interesting. Verse 6, God says He wants His people in exile to multiply and not diminish. And certainly there in the immediate context, part of that is having children and then raising them up as disciples. You know, if you're so busy out there trying to save the world that you lose your family, that's actually a net loss for the kingdom. That's not the right way to do it. But at the same time, not all church growth should require nine months advance notice. We want to see the people of God grow and increase through conversions as well. And the key to the church's success and mission is always love and service and sacrifice as the context for the proclamation of the Gospel. All of us, even in this Bible Belt city we live in, all of us have neighbors who do not know the shalom of Jesus, the peace of Jesus. We've got geographic neighbors. On the street we live on, we've got vocational neighbors we know from work. We've got recreational neighbors whose kids play in the same sports leagues that we play in. How are we loving those neighbors? You know, one thing to do is to consider what the church looks like through their eyes. What does the church look like to the non-Christian right now? Do we sound like a bunch of whiny complainers? who are upset just because we're not in charge anymore. If so, the Gospel will never seem to be anything more but a power play for our particular tribe. It ought not to be that way. We ought to think about what church, what this church looks like through the eyes of a visitor. What is it like for somebody who walks through those doors for the first time and comes to visit us? How can we make them feel welcome and loved? How can we connect with them and help them understand what we're doing as weird as it is? How can we show them hospitality and extend friendship to them? Friendship is different from friendliness. Anybody can be friendly. A hi, how are you? And a handshake. But real friendship requires commitment and sacrifice. That's the kind of neighbor love we're called to. But let me give you some encouragement in this. A few chapters later, in Jeremiah, the Lord gives His promise to His people in exile. This is Jeremiah 31. The prophet says, this is what the Lord will do for the people. This is how He will give them the hope and future spoken of in chapter 29. Jeremiah 31 says, the days are coming when the Lord will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The Lord says, I will put My law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity and no longer will a man say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me from the least to the greatest. What's the promise of this new covenant Jeremiah talks about? The law we put on their minds so they obey Him with new power. Their sins will be forgiven so they'll be assured of their acceptance and their evangelism will be successful. No longer will a man say to his neighbor, Know the Lord. Their neighbors will be converted. Now think about this. When the, when the Israelites are given this promise about their neighbors, where are they living? Where were they when this promise was given? They were living in Babylon. Their neighbors were Babylonians. They were pagans. And they were sent by God to Babylon as missionaries to exhort their pagan neighbors to know the Lord. 
And Jeremiah says in the New Covenant, your mission is going to be so successful that evangelism will become obsolete. You're not going to have to tell your pagan neighbor to know the Lord because he already will. No longer will you have to say know the Lord because your neighbor is going to know the Lord. See, the Lord tells us not just to work for the shalom of the city, not just to pray for the shalom of the city. He promises to bring shalom to the city. No matter what kind of culture we find ourselves in, God always says this to His people. I have sent you there. You are my missionary. You are on a mission for me. God always says to us, I have plans for you, plans for peace, plans to give you a hope and a future. Those promises undergird the church's work. Those promises undergird the church's mission. No matter how hostile the culture gets, we always have those promises to support us and drive us onward in this work. The church does not own a white flag. The church does not surrender. The church never surrenders. And given these promises, I think we have to say, rumors of the church's demise are premature. There's no surrendering, there's no retreating, there's no withdrawing. We have no right to despair and no reason to complain. We have a mission. We have work to do. Our neighbors should see in us the peace of God's kingdom. Our neighbors should know that we love them and they should know that we love this city and we're not just in it for our own private benefit, but we are here to serve the greater good. As Christians, we are called to live for the good of the world. And that should be evident. And why do we do this? We do this all for Jesus' sake. We seek the peace of the city because He is the Prince of Peace. See, our hope and our future are found in Jesus. Jesus came to bring peace to Birmingham and indeed to all the cities of the world. Jesus is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. All authority has been given to Him. He will accomplish these things and He's going to use us to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by Your grace we might live as a unique presence and a unique people in this city. That through the way we live and pray and work and serve, we would witness to Jesus so that our culture can have an epiphany of Him, an epiphany of who He is, so that His glory might be revealed in us and through us. May we remember that in these times in which we live, that simply doing our Christian duty is something radical. A radical way of showing Your love and truth to those around us. Oh Lord, help us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with You. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.